This is Macro Horizons, Episode 9, The Unwealth Effect, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts, along with hopes and dreams, from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 11th. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. We've seen yields move lower too, and temporarily through the bottom of the range following the cautious ECB and dismal payrolls report. With supply, CPI, and retail sales on deck ahead of the March FOMC, what's your take on the current state of the market? It's been a fascinating week in the Treasury market. Not only did we see the ECB shift to a decidedly dovish stance, following suit with the Fed to some extent, but also as a clear acknowledgement of the slowdown that Europe is currently experiencing. What was also striking was the deeply disappointing non-farm payrolls print that we had on Friday, a 20,000 job gain for the month of February was well below expectations. In fact, if we look over the course of the last several years, we see very few prints that week without having the U.S. in a more sustained downturn or recession. That said, we're reminded that A single data point does not a trend make, and so we'll be continuing to watch the three-month moving average of non-farm payrolls. For context, the current three-month moving average is at 186,000, albeit the lowest since November of 2017. The biggest debate currently in the market is whether or not the data is suggesting that we're entering a recession more quickly than the market is expecting, or if it's just the classic noise that we see in data at the beginning of the year. Investors are content to dismiss a slowing in growth in the first quarter as a combination of inventory giveback and the statistical flukes that have persisted since the crisis. We're a bit less willing to simply ignore the confluence of weaker indicators that we're seeing, although it's still far too early to suggest the U.S. economy is entering into a recession. At this point, with 10-year yields at roughly 265, we expect a period of consolidation in the very near term, although we maintain that the biggest trade of 2019 will be timing the cyclical re-steepening. In the interim, a test of the bottom of the yield range, which in 10-year yields comes in at 254, will likely be this week's story in the event of disappointing core CPI, another soft round of consumption data in the retail sales report, or simply a follow-through from the ongoing weakness in domestic equities. 
We've also recently seen a series of disappointing economic data from overseas, in particular, the drastic drop in Chinese exports, which offered further evidence of the fallout from the trade war. This is particularly troubling at a point where even a modest stumble in U.S. growth in the context of falling European growth and a retracement in Asia certainly doesn't bode well for the medium-term prospects for the U.S. economy. While we're tempted to simply conclude growth bad yields lower, we're reminded that the inflation data on the horizon will add at least a degree of nuance to that story. Within the core inflation series, we continue to focus on the shelter component, most notably OER. OER has been trending higher recently than one might anticipate given the amount of multifamily supply that is due to hit the market in 2019, as well as some of the deceleration we've seen in home price appreciation. The underlying question that we've taken away from the price action of the last two months hasn't been whether or not the rally in treasuries was justified by the December sell-off in the equity market, but rather if the economic data was going to conform to the dimmer growth outlook. In fact, what we have seen is that it's done just that. At this stage, the bigger question becomes, will the Fed's decision to shift from normalization to an on-hold policy be enough to counter any more significant downturn that we'll see in the economic data? Well, this question certainly won't be resolved this week. Nonetheless, that's my take. It feels like about a week since we've been here discussing some of the key themes in the treasury market and broader financial markets. This week, one of the primary notions that we've been struggling with is as the market has continued to consolidate in a relatively tight range, we've seen a material shift in positions. Now, from our perspective, positioning within financial markets has always been key because we tend to think of ourselves more as contrarians. So in practical terms, when the market is skewed entirely toward the short side or entirely towards the long side, we tend to take the other skew. What we saw throughout most of 2017 and 2018 was a very short bias in the CFTC data, which since the experience of December 2018 has been largely reversed. We now see some of the key client surveys, the longest they've been since 2016 prior to the election and positions in CFTC space have showed a continued short in the front end, but TY, the classic and the ultra-long bond, are much, much, much less short, although still retaining an incremental short. Said differently, we've gone from positioning for a bearish steepener to positioning for a bearish flattener. That fits well with our contrarian view that 2019 will ultimately be defined by a bullish steepener later in the year, led by the two-year sector as the market prices in a much higher probability of rate cuts. And that updated positioning makes sense from a more fundamental perspective. In the past you know, couple months, there's been a deeper acknowledgement that neutral rates are probably closer to current overnight rates. 
even though the December FOMC put the longer run dot at 275, the pivot since then seems like a lot of committee members have opened the door for 240 to be close to neutral. You know, who knows if the March SEP will come down again. But in general, I guess I would say the acknowledgement of the possibility of lower neutrals near current levels should reduce any high conviction shorts out in TY or the ultra. That also begs an interesting question. What's the difference in your mind, John, between neutral and terminal for this particular cycle? Well, so terminal just is what's kind of the highest overnight rate they get to during the cycle. Neutral is in this, you know, model-based, long-run, we're all dead kind of state of the world. And one of the things about this cycle is the committee might not be able to raise rates to this longer-run equilibrium, partly because of how slow the recovery was, partly because of a variety of other factors. But that being said, there still is kind of an upside bias. The conversation is still now, do they hike or not? And the kind of near-term pricing suggests that to be the case, even if longer-run there's less conviction. Let's say we concede that terminal this cycle is 240. It fits well with what we understand the definition of neutral to be. What I would highlight is one of the major risks is a continued underperformance of inflation because the Fed tends not to think of policy rates in nominal terms, but rather in real terms. And so if we see inflation continue to drift below 2%, the realities of pricing will be doing a reasonable amount of tightening for the Fed. Yeah, and that would just keep front-end nominal rates even lower, right? That would be a reason not to hike again, keep it 240. And then the implication of that for the curve should be a little bit steeper in, say, 2s, 10s. And in some ways, we've seen 2s, 10s push towards the top end of their recent 2019 averages this week. Yeah, 20 basis points, I think, has kind of been a line in the sand there where once we reached that threshold, pretty quickly you saw flattening give back as the market realized, you know, maybe it's gone a little bit ahead of itself. And in outright yield terms, kind of that bearishness that Ian touched on, whether it be in positioning data or momentum, seems to have kind of run its course, which meshes well with the range-bound trading that has so characterized the past several weeks and that 260 to 270 range in tens that's now kind of widened back out to what was originally a 260 to 280 range. Have there been any specific indicators you've found helpful in the past couple weeks or any particular formations that have shown up in pricing? Across several benchmarks, it was five, sevens, and tens for what seemed like almost a full week, maybe even a little bit longer. There was a descending triangle that we were tracking that really offered what ended up being pretty good buying opportunities backing up towards the top of the downward sloping trend line that marked the upper bound of that. And ultimately, the bullish implications of that formation longer run didn't end up playing out. But it was telling just how durable the guidance that offered was for six, seven sessions. I'd also add that the period of consolidation that we've seen in the treasury market, which has resulted in relatively low volatility, has been accompanied by a drifting more bearishly in some of the key momentum measures, most notably stochastics. When we're in a range and stochastics push toward being oversold, what that has historically indicated is there will be an inflection point at which even with a more bearish set of fundamentals, 
any significant backup in rates proves to be a useful buying opportunity rather than a trend establishing move. And I think now what we've seen is that point is not coming at 295 or 3% in 10-year yields. We're at 275, and that reality is already starting to manifest itself. It's always amazed me how much the market loves round numbers, although 275 isn't necessarily a round number. You get the point. On the resistance side, 250 seems like an obvious level. 255 was that key resistance that we tested at the beginning of the year. Obviously, anything close to effective Fed funds at 240 will be really hard to justify until we actually see a shift in the Fed cycle. We often get the critique, which is a very fair one, that technical analysis tends to be very myopic and tends to produce more of short-term trading strategies. One of the things that I've always appreciated about technical analysis is it's one of the ways in which we have a real-time application of behavioral finance that we struggle to find in any other form. And I think that behavioral finance just manifests itself in the way almost we speak or write. You know, it's pretty standard when you have a data print or a price response, it's 10-year yields are the highest since when. They are the lowest since when. And the implication of that is then you, you know, you're looking at a squiggly line on the chart and then you draw a horizontal line backwards. And when you see that horizontal line suddenly break a previous level, the weight of that move becomes a little more important. John, I have to say I'm truly proud that you have internalized the technical formation called the squiggly line. I look forward to that type of astute analysis going forward. And a question that I think all three of us have received with increasing frequency is, to put it eloquently, why haven't the lines squiggled higher? And I have some sympathy for that. You know, over the past few weeks, we've had the best equity start year to date in my lifetime. You've seen a little bit of a bounce in consumer sentiment. GDP came in better than expected, ongoing record size issuance, and it seems like a trade deal is in some form of the works. Well, to be fair, GDP might have come in higher than expected, but a lot of that was a function of inventories, and that was also accompanied by lower than expected consumption. And given how reliant the U.S. economy is on consumption, that was a pretty big flag in my mind. More importantly, when we look at the headlines related to a trade deal, we really don't get the sense that any resolution on the trade front is going to bring the world back to the 2015-2016 period in which free trade was such an important pillar for global trade. Why would it not just kind of revert backwards? So much uncertainty has been created. Imagine that you're running a big multinational. The notion that one might have wanted to expand into Europe or further into Latin America for production reasons certainly has been brought into question. And if anything, while we might not see a retrenchment in terms of bringing production back on shore, it will be increasingly unattractive to increase production offshore at this particular moment. So I guess one of the ongoing uncertainties, this isn't the most eloquent way to put this, but how much uncertainty and staying power of said uncertainty has been introduced into global supply chains. And at least at first order, that seems like a drag on growth for years to come, even if there's a short-term agreement. If we look at some of the major surveys, whether it's ISM on the business side, or it is some of the classic 
consumer confidence surveys, what we've seen is all of the optimism that was priced in after the 2016 election and in the run-up to a very strong beginning to 2018 has pretty much been reversed at this point. In fact, the idea that we're now back to pre-election levels on confidence speaks to the notion that all of the classic trade-the-party pro-business follow-through from the GOP's victory has now been taken out of the market. The only nuance that I would add there is that a return of that optimism might be more conceivable had the Fed not just delivered nine rate hikes and a balance sheet runoff. The decline in sentiment, or even just the not large increase in sentiment that we've seen here to date is pretty striking against some of the equity rally. You know, just as a first pass, consumer sentiment is pretty highly correlated with the S&P. While the S&P's really struggled to break that 2800 level for whatever reason, it still has performed extremely well year to date. And I guess I would have expected some type of a sharper rebound, especially with the Fed's U-turn supporting it. But to be fair, the only reason that stocks are higher in 2019 is because the Fed has made it very clear that they're done hiking for the time being, and they've made it very clear, or I would argue they've pre-committed to ending the balance sheet wind down. For those two reasons, it's really a stimulus slash monetary policy led rally. And I wouldn't expect rates to actually back up if the only reason stocks are higher is, in fact, because rates are lower. And that has played out in the price action in the bond market thus far this year, that a lot of things have broken growth positive, have broken wealth effect positive. Confidence has rebounded from some pretty significant drops, but still 10-year yields have failed to get back to where they were only three or four months ago. It does seem that the trading neighborhood that tends to found themselves in this 260 to 280 range, it's pretty notable that it's lower than where it was in 2018, despite the fact that we have a year tighter of a labor market and average hourly earnings now consistently showing greater than 3%. Well, we all know that the labor market tends to be a lagging indicator rather than a leading one. And some of the leading indicators that we have been looking at suggest that the cycle might have peaked. And we're starting to see a retracement, both in terms of actual price action in the treasury market, as well as investor sentiment. So this might be too early to bring this up, because a lot of these GDP now or now cast surveys are just trying to make use of what they can with the data. But I was pretty struck by the New York Fed's print of 0.3% for a Q1 print. Were you struck because it was in positive territory? I mean, that's a legitimate question at this point. Could we be seeing a negative print for Q1? That seems like it would be aggressive, but how do you think the market would respond to it? Say 0.3 comes out. Will people look through this because of shutdown-related consumption movements? Or will people take this kind of seriously that, wow, the deceleration has been faster than people assumed? There's such a strong tendency for first quarter GDP in the U.S. to disappoint that I would be surprised if the market looked at that as conclusive evidence that we're facing a more material slowdown. That said, the experience in Germany, I think, is very informative insofar as we saw a production-led slowdown trickle through to domestic demand, and that is what has put so much downward pressure on German growth. 
in the event that we see parallels of that in the U.S., I think that we would expect that to be far more relevant to the market's expectations. And I think that logic makes a lot of sense and could go a long way in helping to explain to Ben's question or to point, there's been a lot of growth positive developments, but those are all backwards looking or at best contemporaneous. If you assume pricing is forward looking or based off of expectations over the next few quarters or years, what have you, and even if we're not in a recession in Q1 2019, the evidence is building, you're starting to see some production slow down vis-a-vis Germany. Yeah, maybe it makes sense that it's going to be really hard for tens to go anywhere near 3% again this cycle. And one of the biggest concerns that I've had for quite some time is the flattening that has occurred in the yield curve, not twos tens or twos fives per se, but the curve that's more important to the Fed, the three-month bills versus tens curve, really hasn't had a material impact on profitability in the corporate sector because it tends to have a lag of about 18 months. And the bulk of the flattening that we've seen really started in the middle of 2017. And so bringing that logic forward, downward pressure on profits leads to consolidations within industries, rationalizations of workforces, and that results in layoffs and a weaker employment market. So given that we're coming up on that 18-month window since mid-2017, are we starting to see any concerning signs in the labor market that such a process may play out again? A few things outside of kind of the headline NFP figures and the more top-tier data that are beginning to show maybe not signs of a broad-based downturn, but at least not as strong as they once were, are... I think for one, challenger job cuts have been trending upward, which is concerning, as have continuing jobless claims. And again, it's not that we've been seeing a lot of strength in the data for a very long time, and now all of a sudden we've pivoted complete 180 into weakness. It's more that now we're starting to get some mixed signals. Things are starting to be a little bit more choppy which is what you're going to see before that ultimate turn eventually takes place. Uh, John, telephone call for you. We have Bill Phillips on line one. Is that the guy who keeps trying to tell us that inflation just must be right around the corner with unemployment this low? Yes, and apparently he doesn't have IB. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, the modern world has changed a lot. And not to too aggressively pivot into how inflation's actually generated, but one of the things the Fed has been pretty vocal about, in fact, Powell explicitly said expectations are the most important factor for actual inflation. And the reality is that expectations are extremely low and if not potentially falling with some things like the University of Michigan five to 10 year forward at an all time record low. If that is the driver of actual inflation, that's not signaling a pickup anytime soon. Frankly, I've always been a big fan of lowering expectations early. That makes it much easier to outperform later. I mean, that's kind of what you always tell me with regards to my writing. Isn't year-end coming up soon? In the week ahead, trading in the Treasury market will benefit from a series of top-tier data, including CPI, retail sales, and industrial production. Our bigger concern is whether or not the very muted price action on Friday in response to the disappointing non-farm payrolls print will become more thematic. Said differently, has the Treasury market rallied as far as it can based on the amount of information that we currently have? We do have supply. 
threes, tens, and thirties, which should intuitively put upward pressure on yields, if for no other reason than simply a pre-auction concession. One could make the argument, and frankly we would, that part of the price action on Friday was a result of the looming supply. The Treasury market has a long history of pricing in an auction concession the Friday before a big round of Treasury issuance. As we've learned recently from the Treasury Department, current plans are not to increase auction sizes in the longer dated coupons, particularly 10s and 30s. So overall, we would expect a reasonably solid reception to the auctions, with the more operative question being whether or not direct bidders will continue to show up in force. The overall perception of the economic data since the beginning of the year, both in the U.S. and abroad, has been that of a thematic disappointment. It's interesting to note that when one looks at the surprise indices, whether it is in the U.S., China, or Europe, they're disappointing not only the more optimistic expectations that were brought into 2018, but those that have been ratcheted lower, as we've seen at the beginning of 2019. We reminded that as the FOMC has lowered their own estimate of terminal policy rates for this cycle from the mid threes to now at 275, the notion that tens will be a buying opportunity, the closer yields get to 280 or 290, is very consistent with a world in which there is either zero or arguably negative term premium. For further context, our recent client survey asked the question about where the yield peak for 2019 would be in the 10-year space. The average response was 295. That wasn't particularly surprising. The range was 280, essentially saying that we've already seen the high yield marks for the year, to 325. Again, that's very familiar levels certainly ones witnessed in 2018. However, recall that the last time that 10-year yields got above 325 for even a moment, we saw a more severe correction in the equity markets. The translation there between the increase in equity volatility, tighter financial conditions, and the Fed's willingness to respond is now a very clear path and one that we expect to be with the market for some time. There's no official Fed speak scheduled for this week as we await the March 20th FOMC meeting. We're left to contemplate the shape of the curve, and while we're certainly on board with the cyclical re-steepening already underway in 530s, we do find ourselves somewhat perplexed by the price action that we've seen in 10s 30s. We would expect there to be a grab for duration further out the curve if a slowdown is going to be either more imminent or the perception becomes that it will be deeper in nature. The fact that we've seen steepness not only in 10s, 30s, but also in 10s, 20s, and 20s, 30s suggests that there's something more going on than simply the prospects for an additional benchmark from the Treasury Department as borrowing needs increase. Again, that's not a 2019 story, probably isn't even a 2020 story, but it's certainly something that's on the radar. At the end of the day, we expect that what is being priced in at that particular part of the curve has to do more with gauging the severity of a slowdown. If it is a modest slowdown that is belly-led, expectations for a more durable grab for duration are arguably lessened. However, if there's a more pervasive global slowdown, we would be surprised if 
30-year yields yielding above 3% aren't looked back upon as a great buying opportunity. We've reached the point in this episode where we would sincerely like to thank everyone who's managed to make it this far. And as John the Squiggle Hill is wont to say, may the lines ever squiggle in your favor. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.